You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This morning in our sermon, we're going to be dealing with the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 3. And in that connection, we have two scripture readings. First of all, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 53. There's a title over this psalm for the director of music, according to Mahalat, a maskil of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on God? There they were, overwhelmed with dread, for there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame. For God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Let's also turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, 
along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's now read from Lord's Day 3 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Here we together confess, Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in His image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that He might rightly know God His Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify Him. From where, then, did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there, our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to begin this morning, morning sermon with a, a quote. The quote goes like this. The doctrine of total depravity is irresponsible, unintelligent, and destructive. It is contrived by human theologians and is not scriptural. If people are totally depraved, they ought to be shot, gassed in the chamber, or hanged by the neck till dead. That's the end of the quote. Now, the man who wrote this claims to be Reformed. His name is Robert Schuller, and perhaps you've heard of him in connection with his Crystal Cathedral in California. I believe he also has a television show. He's well known in broader Christian circles as a leading prophet of the self-esteem movement. In fact, in that capacity, he's written his own definition of sin. Robert Schuller says that sin is anything which gives you low self-esteem. With that in mind, you can see why he finds the teaching of total depravity to be repulsive. If we're totally depraved, that means that we get knocked down a notch and we will inevitably suffer from low self-esteem. In other words, the doctrine of total depravity will lead us to sin. So we see that in Christian circles, we can call it that, the doctrine we find in our catechism is under attack. It's not well respected. And the attack comes from more than one direction. Is also there are people who don't see Genesis 1 to 3 as giving us a factual account of what happened at the beginning of the world. They think total depravity is foolishness because they don't believe that man ever really fell into sin. There never was a person named Adam in history. The story just kind of gives us a, a model or a, a paradigm, if you're going to use a fancy word, to describe what, what happens to many of us. We have to make our choice. 
just like Adam did. And most of the time, most of us fall and fail, just like Adam did in the story. But there is the possibility that someday we will learn from our mistakes. And and when that happens, we will find peace and goodness in this world. And so these people say, it's not inevitable that every man sins. Man is not totally depraved, they say. He's just weak. He needs some help. We can expect things to get better for mankind. Against this type of thinking and against the self-esteem false prophets, we confess man's total depravity. We confess that man is dead in sin and totally corrupt. We don't believe in the good which lays within every man, to use that expression. We don't believe that every person is basically good in his heart and only needs the right circumstances to find his good potential. Now, brothers and sisters, we confess from the Bible that apart from God, apart from His work in our lives, we are wicked and we are perverse. Our catechism has already made this point in Lord's Day 2, but in Lord's Day 3, we see this worked out further. And so, this morning I preached to you God's, God's Word as it's been summarized in the catechism with the theme, we confess our total depravity. And we'll see depravity's origin, its extent, and then finally, its solution. We confess that man is depraved. To be depraved means to be corrupt. In fact, that word depraved and depravity and so on comes from the Latin word pravus. And pravus means crooked. So to say it another way, man is crooked. He's not the right shape that he should be. The right shape he was created to be. That point was already made in Lord's Day 2 where we looked at those words, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I cannot keep God's law perfectly the way that I should. This is obviously a serious problem for it means that man's destination is utter God forsaken us. A holy God cannot tolerate sin in His presence. This is a serious problem. How can we get out of it? Well, perhaps there is a way if we can find someone else to blame. If the blame can be leveled somewhere else, then man isn't responsible for being out of shape, for being crooked. And the most natural place to point the finger is that the one who created man. Man didn't come in into this world on his own after all. There was a creator who, who formed him and shaped him and placed him on this earth. And so in one sense, it's completely natural that the question is asked. For if God created man with this defect, this crookedness, then how can he expect, reasonably expect, man to keep God's law perfectly? It would be completely unreasonable and God would be unjust. But is God like that? Well, the Scriptures tell us otherwise. Take Job 34.10, for instance. There we find Elihu speaking these words of truth. He says, Far be it from God to do evil, for the Almighty to do wrong. 
Then he goes on in verse 12, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. And he was right. God cannot be blamed for anything evil in this world, and that includes man's wickedness. We confess the same thing in the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 15, when we confess that the thought that God could be the author of sin That thought is blasphemous. That's strong language. That might even make us inclined to slap the wrist of our hypothetical catechetical question asker. But this is the kind of thinking that people try to use to excuse their behavior, to rationalize what they do. I can't help it. I was made this way. You can't blame me. If I was made this way, then you can't blame me for what I do. I'm just a helpless victim in a divine tragedy. And no one blames a victim. When you have a victim, it's always someone else's fault. Well, the catechism, following what we read in Scripture, is not going to validate the blame game. The first answer of our Lord's Day is direct. No, on the contrary. In other words, scarcely nothing could be more wrong than to say that God is responsible for man's crookedness. No, rather, God created man good. He created him in His image, in true righteousness and holiness. That means that God created man to be like God. In a certain way. Man was created to reflect God's likeness. Man was created so that he would love the right and shun all evil, that he would keep himself separate from it, as God does. Say it another way, man was created morally straight, not crooked. Well, that's the way man was created. Then we can quickly ask a question which doesn't get a lot of thought nowadays. Is it biblical to say that any given person today, Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter, can we say that everybody in the world is created in the image of God? Sometimes you hear people say that. Everybody is created in the image of God. Does man in his fallen state retain the image of God? I don't think that question gets asked very often today. A lot of people just assume that that's the case. Well, here we have to make a very careful distinction. To understand this, you're going to have to listen carefully. There is a sense in which all people, Christians and non-Christians, retain the image of God, even in their fallen state. People are capable of reasonable and rational thought. They don't always do that, but they are capable of it. And that reflects God, in whom all things live and move and have their being. It reflects God, the God of order. People are also capable of being creative, whether in in the arts or in, in other things. And that reflects God, the Creator. 
So there is this sense in which all people still have aspects of the image of God. But we have to quickly add that these things too, these are also affected by man's sinfulness, his fallenness. So there is this, this one sense, this one aspect. And if you want a word to hang this on, I wish I could give you a simple word, but I can't. I have to give you a little bit of a philosophical word. We could call it the ontological sense of the image of God. Ontological is a philosophical word that refers to everything that has to do with existence and being. If you want to know how it's spelled, it's O-N-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Ontological. So there is that sense in which man still retains the image of God. But there is another sense in which fallen man has completely lost the image of God. And we can call this, and here we have an easier word to use, the ethical sense of the image of God. So there's ontological and then there's ethical. As far as God's moral qualities are concerned, fallen man does not retain the image of God. This is what one of the authors of the Catechism, Zacharias or Sinus, was writing, uh, talking about when he wrote in his commentary on, on the Catechism. He said, man lost this glorious image of God and he became transformed into the hateful image of Satan. That's also what the Catechism is talking about. The Catechism is talking about the image of God in the ethical sense of the word, not the ontological. Of himself, man no longer reflects God's image as far as his moral qualities are concerned. He rather reflects the image of his new Lord, his new master, Satan. And it's only when the Spirit is working in the life of a person that he or she begins to show what ought to be there. God's image. If you think about it, it makes sense. How can the one who is alienated, separated from God by his sin, how can such a person reflect God's image in this ethical, this moral sense? But with the Spirit of God working in the heart, then a person is brought near to God brought into union with Christ. And then a reflection can definitely be seen as a result. That's the point that Paul makes so clearly in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says there, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness. We can say image. With ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And notice how it said, being transformed into His likeness or into His image. That means that coming to reflect God's image in this ethical sense is a process. You can see the same thing in our reading from Ephesians 4. In that passage, Paul very vividly illustrates the life of man apart from God. Notice too how he emphasizes that Gentiles are separated from the life of God. 
How can they be the image of God in, in this ethical sense when they are separate from Him? Apart from, man, apart from God, man is clearly wicked. And so the Scriptures stand clear against someone like Robert Schuller. Man is wicked apart from God. But for the Ephesian believers, this has changed and it is changing. They are called to put off their old nature, their old self, and to put on the new. You know what Paul is talking about here, don't you? He's speaking here about sanctification. Sanctification leads believers to increasingly reflect the image of God in all its fullness, both the ontological sense and the ethical sense. Sanctification is the process by which people are led to rightly know God, heartily love Him to the end, that they might live with Him in eternal blessedness. That was the original purpose of man's creation. And now it continues to be the purpose of man's spiritual recreation. God is leading us upward to have a new nature in His image, in true righteousness and holiness. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we find all those commands at the end of Ephesians 4. Put off lying and falsehood. Work faithfully. Avoid unwholesome speech. Being kind and compassionate. And so on. Through the new life, we are clearly called to live as a new creation. But we weren't created wicked and perverse. We have become this way. And though we weren't born righteous and holy, we are called, even commanded, to become this way. God created us good to enjoy rich blessings in communion with Him in paradise. And all this, we so clearly see that, that God is good beyond, beyond measure. And so how can we blame Him for our fallen condition? Well, if God isn't to blame, then who? Well, here too, the catechism is very direct. There's no escaping the fact that our, our crooked, depraved nature comes from our first parents, Adam and Eve. The first three chapters of our Bibles tell us how all that happened. And I assume that most of us are familiar with that. But we should ask ourselves, how do we know that these are the facts and that they're not just a, a, a nice story like the Greek myths? Well, we read from Psalm 53 and we saw there very clearly that man's depravity is a given fact. Obviously, David took Genesis very seriously. And that's very weighty when we consider that David himself was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And then we have the clear witness of Scripture in a, in a passage such as Luke 3.38. There we find the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's all these historical figures. And Adam is there too. If we hold to the Scriptures as the Word of God, we cannot reach any other conclusion other than that man's depraved nature originates with man. 
in particular with a historical man and woman named Adam and Eve in paradise. Only man is to blame for his sinful nature. Well, let's now move on to consider depravity's extent. Up till now, you won't have too hard a time finding people to agree with us. They'll, they'll say, oh, sure, okay, man is, is crooked and depraved. Man does some pretty wicked things. We look at the, the biker gangs. We look at the prisons. We look at the, the Stalins and the Hitlers of history, not to mention the Clifford Olsons and the Paul Bernardos. And then last week there was that fellow at the Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania. Man can do some pretty wicked things. But there are also a lot of good people, they'll say. There are tons of people who, who do good to help others. There are people who, who volunteer up at the hospital. They volunteer at the hospice. There are people who volunteer their time to get donations for, for the Heart and Stroke Foundation or for the Terry Fox Run and, and whatever else. Many of them are, are not Christians. So we could go on and on. Man may be depraved, but is he really totally depraved? What exactly is the extent of man's depravity? Well, the Catechism says that with the fall and disobedience of Adam and Eve, our nature became so corrupt. How corrupt did it become? Well, so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin wasn't the case that Adam's, Adam and Eve's sin only affected them, that it was just a, a private affair between them and God, that it only involved them as individuals. No, it's quite plain from Scripture that their sin was so serious that it impacted the whole human race. That's one of the important points that Paul wants to make in Romans chapter 5. It's the key chapter. When we talk about the imputation or the passing on of Adam's sin. He says in verse 18 of that chapter that the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. We can compare the situation to an apple tree. If you have an apple tree, which is of the golden delicious variety, that you wouldn't expect to find Granny Smith apples growing on the branches you find golden delicious apples. Now, of course, the apples growing in the human race are, are anything but golden or delicious. I hope you get the point. Adam's sin was so serious that it didn't just poison his individual relationship with God, but it poisoned the whole tree of the whole human race. He was the covenant head of the whole human race. And so everybody, without exception, inherits this poison. Every baby that comes into this world is infected with this poison. And we may find it hard to believe when, when we see a little baby. How can such a sweet little creature be an heir of such a horrible inheritance? This is the clear testimony of God's Word, brothers and sisters. The language of the Catechism is taken right from Psalm 51, verse 5, where it says that we are all conceived and born in sin. 
Now, we should be clear on what this means. It doesn't mean that the act of conceiving a child is sinful. Now, you may laugh at that. I think it's a little funny, but some people in the history of the church have thought that way. They made sex between married people out to be a dirty and to be a sinful thing in itself. But the Scriptures glorify it. The Scriptures show it to be truly beautiful. And you have only to read the Song of Solomon to see that. So it doesn't mean that. Rather, being conceived and born in sin means that from the moment we are conceived, we are polluted. We are poisoned with sin. In particular, with original sin. What is original sin? Well, it's defined quite neatly by the Belgic Confession in Article 15. It is a corruption of the entire nature of man and a hereditary evil which infects even infants in their mother's womb. That's what it means to be conceived and born in sin. It means that even before you were born, you were filthy with sin. And that corruption affects the entire nature of man according to what we confess in the Belgic. It's not the case that we're just weak or sick. Scripture paints a very clear picture of man in his sin. We see that when Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. Total corruption. There's no part of man that has not been corrupted. Body and soul Mind, heart, and will, everything has been fatally poisoned with sin. And in this connection, I'd like to read a short quote from our Canons of Dort to underline what I'm saying here. And the quote goes like this, The unregenerate man is not really or totally dead in sins or deprived of all powers unto spiritual good. He can yet hunger and thirst after righteousness and life, and offer the sacrifice of a contrite and broken spirit which is pleasing to God. Well, this is not what we confess to be the truth. Rather, this is what the remonstrants or the Arminians taught, those who were followers of Jacob Arminius during the 17th century. What I was reading was Error 4 in chapter 3-4. It's important that we realize that this is plainly unscriptural. We say in the canons that these things militate against the express testimony of Scripture. Man is dead in sin. End of story. There is no hope for man at all unless God makes him a new creation. Both Scripture and our confessions are clear on this point. And that's why the last question and answer puts it so point blank. Are you saying then that man is so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Is the situation really so bad? And the answer is yes. Again, we have to see that the Scriptures are clear. Rather than building up man's self-esteem, the Bible always points us to our desperate situation apart from God. Satan does not have a problem with self-esteem. And by nature, neither do we. Adam and Eve 
chose the wicked way because they believed themselves to be above God. Their problem was thinking too highly of themselves. Our root problem is no different. When we are alienated from God, we too are totally inclined to all evil. We place ourselves above the law and also above the lawgiver. Crooked to the core. That's how we are as we sit by ourselves. And what can we do? Can we pull ourselves up? Well, if you're dead, you can't move. So obviously, you can't pull yourself up. You can't do anything for yourself. We need a solution from above. And that's what we see in our third point. As we look at depravity's solution, the catechism is brief on this point, at this point in the catechism. And so this this morning we're going to be brief as well. And the reason for the brevity is that the catechism deals much, much more with this in, in the other Lord's Days. However, in this Lord's Day, there is a particular approach that, that is taken. The catechism connects total depravity with good works and regeneration. And the way it does this is, is, is rather intriguing. First, we have the question, is man's corruption so bad that he can't do anything right? And the answer, which we already looked at, yes. But there is an exception. Unless. Now, unless is a very small word, but it's very, very important here. This unless shows us a doorway, a way out of this hot and hellish room. There is a way to do good and not to be inclined to all evil. But the way is not found here. Not found with man. It's not found in finding ourselves. Not found in self-help books or building up our self-esteem. Rather, the way comes from above, down to us. The solution to the problem is found in regeneration by the Spirit of God. Now, this concept is not entirely new in the context of the catechism because already in the first Lord's Day, it was it was implied. There we confess that the Holy Spirit, He works the new life in us and He makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for God. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He enables us to do the good and avoid evil. If an answer is to be found for our crookedness, He must work in us. He must be there. The Lord Jesus made this plain when He met Nicodemus the Pharisee in John 3. The Savior said that to enter the kingdom of God, it is necessary to be born of water and the Spirit. It is necessary to be born again. It's only with the new birth through the Spirit that we can be led to do good works and begin to keep God's law in some small measure in this life. Only through that way can we be led to praise and glorify God in our lives, being renewed in His image in true righteousness and holiness. Regeneration by the Spirit of God, the Bible tells us clearly, it is absolutely necessary. <laughs> 
We have to be born again. Every single one of us, without exception. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've had some kind of remarkable experience in your life, a a Damascus Road type event. It could be and likely is the case with many of us that we we're like Timothy in the Scripture, that we have been raised to fear the Lord and to believe in the Lord Jesus from our earliest childhood, right from the time we could understand what our parents were saying to us. It doesn't matter when. What matters is that you are regenerated. We must be regenerated. And how do you know if you have been? Well, the Canons of Dort summarize the scriptural teaching on that in chapter 5, article 10. We confess there that assurance comes by faith in the promises of God. So each one of us needs to consider whether we trust the covenant promises that God made to us in our baptism. Do we believe with all our heart in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins? Assurance also comes by the serious and holy pursuit of a good conscience and good works. Consider for yourself whether godliness is a priority in your life and whether you are conscientious in your pursuit of godliness. We have to examine ourselves whether we can indeed answer with a hearty affirmative to both of those questions. Do we look to the solution that comes from above down to us? Well, as Reformed believers, we must. And we will. And we also recognize that we as a a Reformed church, we're, we're virtually isolated with our regular preaching and teaching of man's total depravity. However, I want to emphasize this morning that this isolation is not a bad thing. And why not? Because it arises from our confession of the truth. The Scriptures make it clear that man was created in a very good way with rich blessings, but he senselessly turned his back on God. And without understanding the depth of our fall, the extent of our depravity, we will never fully appreciate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And think about it. The glory of Christ is at stake with this doctrine. At the same time, we have to remind ourselves not to be pessimistic navel-gazers or morbid narcissists who, who never get beyond our own, our own sin and wickedness. The catechism goes beyond our sin and misery, and so must we. Nevertheless, we have to be biblically realistic as we evaluate the world around us, as we also evaluate our own lives and our own experiences. And as such, we also realize that the the trend of rank wickedness that we presently see growing and getting more intense, it's not going to continue forever. For there is the promise of God for those who believe. The promise that even though man is so wicked, yet through Christ there will be a new creation 
And this new creation is going to exceed the glory and splendor of paradise before the fall into sin. Wow. We have something great and wonderful to look forward to, don't we? And those who are in Christ, those who have union with Christ by true faith, are destined for greater things to the praise and glory of God in the age to come. However, the fulfillment of this destiny is not going to originate here on this earth. It will come from above and it will come down to us. And so we too must always look above where Christ is and from where He pours out His Holy Spirit on us. Brothers and sisters, pray eagerly. Pray earnestly for the Spirit to work in you and in others, that He would continue working in your heart and life with the Word. For it is by that divine means that you'll know both the assurance and the reality of an eternal blessedness in which you, together with all the saints, praise God forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.